Hello, everyone. It's me, Maya Contreras, host of Obscene Podcast. On the last episode, you heard an excerpt of my interview with Ben Williams of the Princeton Gerrymandering Project. Here is the full episode. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Official scorekeeper of American development for 150 years has been the busy but unspectacular United States Census. Created by Article I of the U.S. Constitution, its population figures since 1790 have determined the number of delegates from each state in the House of Representatives. Fifteen times, through wars, booms, and panics, the census has presented a steadily broadening picture of the nation in its 10-year inventory. Congress has repeatedly extended the scope of census questions to meet the growing complexity of American life. In April 1940, 120,000 census takers are radiating in a carefully planned pattern across America to complete in a single month the greatest inventory of the world's greatest democracy. Official census questions must be answered, but the census taker is sworn to strict confidence with heavy penalties for violation of his oath. On June 27th, the Supreme Court essentially blocked the citizenship question from being added to the census. On July 3rd, it was determined that the census would be printed without it. I wanted to post this episode about gerrymandering and the census shortly after that, but just as I went to post it, the citizenship question, and whether or not it was going to be added to the census, was in limbo yet again. The citizenship question would have affected everyone in this country, and I'll let my guest, Ben Williams, explain how in a moment. We know that Latinx people in particular, who were worried about their status or their family status in the U.S., would have been deterred from participating in the census. According to a study done by Harvard's Schoenstein Center, as many as 6 million Latinx people might not have been counted on the 2020 census if the question had been added. That's a little more than 12% of the entire Latinx population in the U.S. So on July 4th, less than 24 hours after the DOJ announced it would stick with the SCOTUS ruling of keeping the question off, they changed their minds and said they would continue to explore ways to add it to the census. This was a reversal that came after Trump tweeted earlier that morning. I don't have a Trump impression, so I'll just read the tweet. Quote, so important for our country and the very simple and basic are you a citizen of the United States question be allowed to be asked in the 2020 census. Department of Commerce and Department of Justice are working very hard on this, even on the 4th of July, end quote. A surprise to many DOJ lawyers. Trump expressed adding it through executive order, causing mass confusion on whether or not he actually could do that. Luckily, civil rights lawyer Kristen Clark cleared it up. She added in a tweet, The Constitution specifically gives the power to control the census to Congress, and Congress only. Congress then delegated part of that authority to the Secretary of Commerce. The President absolutely cannot issue an executive order mandating the citizenship question on the 2020 census. End quote. Finally, just a few days ago, Trump relented saying he would not add the citizenship question to the census. Trump, however, is still working on trying to push the Census Bureau to give the GOP a, quote, citizen count so they can draw district lines in the new year. It's not the last of this battle, and I, for one, want to have a better understanding of the census, district lines, and gerrymandering. Luckily, Ben Williams of Princeton's Gerrymandering Project is here to share his expertise. Take a listen. My name is Ben Williams, and I'm a legal analyst at the Princeton Gerrymandering Project, which is a research group housed within Princeton University. And what drew you to your occupation? <laughs> so, I mean, that's a good question. So uh, I grew up in a family that was very politically engaged. Uh, I had elected officials on both my mother's side and my father's side. So politics and current events was something that was discussed around the dinner table. Uh, when I went to college, I majored in international relations. And when I was there, there were professors that I gravitated towards that focused on democratic theory rather than like, you know, the, the political parties themselves. It was how democracies form, how they strengthen, how they weaken and how they die. And, mm. uh, 
you know, there were, there were certainly early warning signs back then in the early 2010s, warning bells uh, about, uh, at that point, mostly on campaign finance, I think was what was most prominent. Uh, and I developed an interest in that, and I decided that I wanted to go to law school and do election law. I ended up in the election law program at William and Mary in Virginia. Mm, that's right. And yeah, it's a, it's a great program run by uh, Professor Rebecca Green. Uh, people, uh, your listeners should look her up. She's uh, an invaluable resource on uh, election work. And uh, when I was in law school, I had an internship with a local redistricting reform organization called One Virginia 2021, mm-hmm. which got me more involved in gerrymandering itself. Uh, it was something I knew about in passing, but hadn't studied or focused on in any detail. But once I dug into it, you know, I loved the complexity of the topic and the fact that unlike campaign finance, the Supreme Court hadn't said this is beyond the democratic process to fix. And so it was something that could be tangibly, uh, you know, something could be done to, about it. And so I was like, this is where I want to start my career. I want to get involved in gerrymandering and, you know, ending it. And so I ended up at Princeton and here I am. What obstacle did you have in your career? So the, the first case I ever worked on, uh, was when I was, I was still in law school and uh, just to to give some background, uh, Virginia's constitution, like most state constitutions includes some criteria for how district lines should be drawn in the state. Mm -hmm. And uh, Virginia's constitution requires that districts be compact, which there's not really a, a solid definition for that. But if you were just trying to describe it very generally, it would mean that districts have a somewhat circular or squarish shape without mm-hmm. tendrils or fingers sticking out in irregular or odd directions. Right. And uh, the firm I was working with was representing voters in Virginia who sued in state court under the state constitution, claiming their state legislative districts were so non-compact that they violated the state constitution. Mm-hmm. And we, we felt like we put on a strong case at trial, but we lost because the legal standard the court used to review the redistricting plan was extremely deferential to the legislature's judgment about what was mm-hmm. compact. Right. And, we, and we appealed and lost at the Supreme Court of Virginia for that same reason. And it, it taught me at an early stage in my career that even if all of the facts are on your side, if you have the math that proves that on a scale of zero to one, uh, the district you're challenging had a 0.15 on compactness from lowest to right. highest. Uh, right. and, the, and the state Supreme Court says, nope, that is constitutionally compact uh, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of deference to legislatures that's built into the law. And when you're working on something like gerrymandering, you if you're working through courts, that's something you have to overcome. So I, I learned at that point that while courts would always be an important part of the fight against gerrymandering, it would not be the only part. State action through legislatures and ballot initiatives and public advocacy would be equal to, if not more important, than uh, filing lawsuits. That's something good to hear, and we'll go uh, into that a little bit more in this conversation. Um, What's the number one misunderstanding people have about your job? I think that people don't have a a solid grasp of what gerrymandering is. And that's because it's, and that's not anyone's fault. That's because it's a term that is poorly defined or has multiple meanings. Mm -hmm. Uh, People get that politicians shouldn't be drawing their own district lines because that's a conflict of interest, but they're unclear about how to solve that. Uh, Some people think that uh, redistricting should be taken, um, you know, people should be taken out of the redistricting process altogether or that an algorithm should figure out where district lines should be. Other people think that redistricting is hopelessly political Mm. or that there's no way to reform the process. So why bother changing it? Um, But those arguments are both wrong for very different reasons. Uh, As to why people can't be taken out of the process, uh, People don't live in neat lines. Like people don't live in squares. When you look at right. maps, uh, you know, urban spread is is very uneven and follows natural geographic features a lot. So if you were drawing 
if you use an algorithm that just drew people into you know equal population boxes, uh, you would be cutting up a lot of communities, and you you wouldn't necessarily be representing anything than some arbitrary measure of geography. Right. Um, and you need someone at the helm really to comply with the Voting Rights Act because if you want to enable a minority group to elect their candidate of choice, you you have to make uh, judgments when you're drawing the lines about. Uh, where the minority group is, you have to look at the legal test to see whether or not the VRA even applies in a given situation. And right. if you if you wrote an algorithm to do that, you would be writing the author's own biases into the algorithm. And that could right. be legally problematic. So it's really important to have a person at the helm. So if that person makes a mistake, they can be subpoenaed and taken into court and, uh, you know, asked to describe what they did, which is you know, important to the legal process. Um, as to the, the second part of what I was talking about, which is, um, whether you can take the politics out of the situation altogether, uh, even assuming, and I'm not conceding the point, but just assuming the point that partisanship can't be taken out. That isn't a reason not to try to make it less bad. Right. You know, you can curb excesses without, uh, while still acknowledging that there may be some partisanship, no matter how the lines are drawn. Uh, you know, even if you create some criteria that narrows the universe of possible maps that could be drawn that comply with that criteria, mm-hmm. that's an inherent good. You've reduced the number of extreme gerrymanders that are possible because you've put some sort of limit on the on how many maps could be legally compliant. And so, uh, I think it's really important to remember that. Just because the perfect may not be obtainable, good certainly is. And we shouldn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Right. And you did mention that a lot of people don't have a clear understanding of gerrymandering. So, you know, let's let's have you try to define it as best uh, that you can. Um, and what was the original purpose of it? Sure. So gerrymandering is the process of drawing district lines with the intent of achieving some ill-gotten or illicit objective. I think it's the most general definition. Uh, Your listeners have probably heard about it most frequently in the press as partisan gerrymandering, which is drawing district lines with the intent of favoring one party over another. But it could also be racial gerrymandering, which Mm -hmm. is the intentional sorting of voters on the basis of race uh, without doing so to comply with some existing law like the Voting Rights Act, or it could be incumbent protection gerrymandering, uh, which is when politicians draw lines to keep themselves in power. And gerrymandering has been around since uh, the founding of the Republic. Uh, James Madison was famously uh, stuck into a gerrymandered district because he was a Federalist, and uh, the people, uh, I think it was Patrick Henry, was drawing the first district in Virginia, that this con- congressional district, and he wanted James Monroe to get elected to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't matter. James Madison won anyway. But, um, and then the phrase comes from Elbridge Gerry, who was the governor of Massachusetts in 1812. And uh, he signed off on a, a map that had some really convoluted-looking districts uh, around Boston and a Boston newspaper uh, said that one of the districts looked like a salamander. No, a gerrymander. And so <laughs> that is the completely dorky origin of the, of the phrase gerrymandering. Uh, but it's been around for a long time, obviously, if it's, we're talking about the late 1700s, early 1800s. Right. But uh, in the past 20 years or so, as uh, data sets have gotten more sophisticated, uh, people have become more polarized in their voting. There isn't as much split ticket voting now as there was uh, maybe when Bill Clinton was elected for the first time in 92. And so it's easier to predict how people will vote. And if you have that information about how people vote, you have where they live, and you can use some modeling to predict how many people will move in and out of a district and how... uh, different areas may grow in population or decrease in population over time, uh, it's possible with the existing software to to design maps that uh, produce pretty reliable political outcomes over time. 
And that's, that's the real change over the right. past 20 years. The, it used to be that you, there was a lot of guesswork and a gerrymander uh, may break or backfire because people guessed incorrectly. But, right. n- but now uh, that's increasingly less and less likely, and it's increasingly more and more likely that a, a gerrymander will be durable or will last throughout the entire decade. Yeah, because we have so much more data available just everywhere, you know. Exactly. Facebook, I mean, Twitter, yes. Everything, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so speaking of data, um, tell us a little bit how the census and gerrymandering relate to one another. Sure. So um, God, it's, a, it's a complicated relationship. So uh, <laughs> I think it's just easier to say that uh, states are required to redraw their district lines at the start of every decade. Uh, that's under the doctrine called one person, one vote, which says mm-hmm. roughly that individuals um, should have an equal weighted vote for representatives representatives to legislative bodies. And that can be Congress, that can be a state legislature, that can be a city council. They, it goes up and down. Uh, the the amount of uh, equity that you need at, at each level varies a little bit. You have line drawers have a little bit more flexibility in legislative seats. In congressional districts, you need exact numerical equality. Um, but uh, you obviously can't you can't draw lines without the census data, which uh, accounts for how many people live in an individual. Uh, area. And the census information is also critical to the nationwide reapportionment of seats because we have a fixed number of seats in Congress, 435. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as people move around from state to state, a state may gain or lose a congressional seat. So states that are typically growing, Texas is the fastest growing state. Texas is gaining multiple congressional seats every, every, uh, decade and they're expected to gain up to three more this cycle so uh where and the states that are losing population are primarily in uh, the northeast and the rust belt so uh, as people migrate south um you're going to see more and more uh representation gravitate towards those uh growing urban centers and the sun belt so the census is obviously critical and an accurate count in the census is critical uh, to make sure that when the census bureau is telling states how many seats they're going to have for the next decade, they actually know how many people are in that state. And, um, you know, that gets into the the citizenship question cases, which I, I, you know, we may touch on a little bit later. No, absolutely. Um, What effect does egregious partisan gerrymandering have on local state elections? I know you touched on a little bit, but we we have some some really outrageous um, examples in Wisconsin, North Carolina and Maryland that some people may not know about. Sure. So you you picked three of perhaps the most egregious of these gerrymanders. Uh, We'll start starting with Maryland. Maryland is probably the most notorious partisan gerrymander of the last cycle that was committed by Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, we know now from court documents that the state party leadership, including Governor O'Malley, were intent on turning the state's longstanding congressional delegation from six Democrats and two Republicans to seven Democrats and one Republican, right. and that they were successful in that effort for the entire decade. The district that encompasses the westernmost portions of Maryland, you know, this is Appalachia and farm country, um, you know, not a typically Democratic stronghold, but it's been represented by uh, none other than presidential candidate John Delaney. So uh, it's uh, had solid dem- Democratic um, representation ever since, and there is no indication that that will change through. Uh, 2020. And the Maryland, that Maryland district in particular was one of the districts that was at issue in the U.S. Supreme Court cases that were decided last week. Right. Um, the other state that was involved in those cases was North Carolina. Uh, and North Carolina is both a racial gerrymander and a partisan gerrymander, which is common in the South because race is so correlated with p- 
party, uh, right. African American voters um, in the South almost uniformly vote uh, for Democrats and white voters in the South. Although, if you look at the data, it's actually less polarized in North Carolina than some other states. But in general, white voters in the South vote for Republicans. Um, yeah. North Carolina is one of the most evenly divided states in the country politically. If you look at election results, uh, in almost any given election, it's almost exactly 50% of the vote goes to Democrats, 50% of the vote goes to Republicans. Uh, to give you an example of how severe the gerrymander this past decade has been, uh, in the 2010 midterm elections, which was the last election in which the old maps were used, um, there were seven Democrats and six Republicans in the state's congressional delegation. Uh, but in that same election, Republicans swept into control of all of the levers of state power. And so they were in charge of drawing the new lines after the 2010 census data was transferred to them in 2011. Uh, and the legislature got going. They hired uh, a redistricting guru named Thomas Hoffler uh, and uh, he designed maps that uh, acted exactly as intended. In 2012 and 2014, which were the two cycles in which those maps were in effect, North Carolina elected 10, or, sorry, 10 Republicans and three Democrats to Congress. Mm. Um, despite the two parties' share of the vote being roughly the same as it was in the 2000s when it was seven Democrats, six Republican. Right. And... Those maps were struck down as a racial gerrymander in 2015. And right. in 2016, Tom Hoffler was hired to draw a remedial map, and he drew another map, which the state legislature was very clear. They said out loud that it was a partisan gerrymander and that it was intended to elect 10 Democrats, or sorry, 10 Republicans and three Democrats because. Uh, Representative Lewis didn't believe it was possible to draw a map that elected 11 Republicans and two Democrats. Right. So, um, and that map was in effect in 2016, and uh, a slightly modified version was in effect in 2018, and that 10-3 Republican-Democrat uh, seat share has held, despite the fact that in uh, the 2018 election it was once again roughly 50-50 in the statewide vote. Wisconsin was your third state. That's a, yeah. It's a similar story to North Carolina. It's roughly 50-50 politically. Uh, for example, uh, in 2008, Wisconsin's congressional delegation was five Democrats and three Republicans, uh, and Democrats won the statewide congressional vote by about 5%. Uh, in 2010, when Democrats lost the statewide congressional vote by 9%, uh, that flipped, and it became 5R3D, which right. seems normal. That's what you'd expect. Mm -hmm. But when Republicans drew the lines for the next decade following the census in 2011, the, they had one goal, which was to ensure that the 5-3 Republican-Democrat majority and the congressional delegation would never waver. And right. once again, they succeeded throughout the entire decade thus far. Each party has maintained its share of the seats, despite Democrats winning more congressional votes statewide than Republicans in all but one of the elections. In 2014, Republicans won more, but in 2012, 2016, and 2018, Democrats won more votes, but got three of the eight seats. Right. And it doesn't stop there. There's a continued um, trying to pull away and siphoning the power after um, they've done that. So that's what's incredible to me. Um, what is prison gerrymandering? So prison gerrymandering... Uh, I guess to, to, to take one step back, when, when someone is incarcerated and is sent to a prison, uh, if they are in that prison during the census, there's a, there's a question for the state and for the Census Bureau. Do you count that person as living at their last recorded address before they were incarcerated? Or do you report them as being a resident in the prison itself? In all but a select hand, handful of states, uh, prisoners are not allowed to vote. And so if they're counted at where they reside, rather than, uh, which is in the prison, rather than their last known address, uh, then that area of a particular state, like, and you can presume that a lot of prisons are built in rural areas because it's cheaper for states to do that, right. that 
that area will all of a sudden have a boom in population of people who neither choose to live there nor have any ability to vote. And so it can transfer political power to that, uh, to the area around that prison rather than it, you know, them being, you know, recorded as residents at their last known address. So it has, it has a distortive effect on representation and can enhance the political power of areas that immediately surround prisons at the expense of the communities from which those prisoners originated. So this week, this past week, um, gerrymandering the census, um, came before SCOTUS. And um, on, the, on the question of partisan gerrymandering, they basically punted. Um, what, in your opinion, what was the reason behind like passing the buck on this issue? So the court has been struggling for over 30 years at this point to come up with some way for judges to determine how much partisanship in redistricting is too much. Uh, the framers of the Constitution gave the power to redraw district lines to the state legislatures, which the justices have long interpreted to be a tacit admission that redistricting is a an inherently political act with political consequences. Academics and activists have for decades been trying to develop statistical tests and geographic tests for differentiating between maps with you know run of the mill partisan effects and those that are truly extreme outliers, the, the worst of the worst gerrymanders. Um, and the court essentially said last week that none of the tests that have been proposed work and that there is no way to determine how much partisanship is too much in redistricting. So they declared uh, partisan gerrymandering cases to be outside of their purview, or mm-hmm. to use the legal phrase, they declared it to be non-justiciable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I strongly disagree with that conclusion. I think uh, people should read the dissent by Justice Kagan. Uh, she makes many excellent points about how the lower courts in these cases had no trouble finding manageable standards for analyzing district maps right. for excessive partisanship. If you look at the record, there, you know, case after case after case over the past three years, district courts have struck down uh, redistricting plans as unconstitutional partisan gerrymanders, and they they found tests that were workable for them. And so the justices essentially told all of those lower court judges that they were wrong. Um, and Which is not a, a usual th- this thing. is This is the only th- instance I can think of in the law where the Supreme Court has acknowledged something is a constitutional violation but has said that they are powerless to do anything about it. Wow. Um, and you know, the, abandoning that role of remedying constitutional violations—it's—it's—it's it's, it's truly breathtaking. Now, I, I will say, that's the legal answer. There's also the cynical answer, which yeah. is that the uh, majority on the court, the five conservatives who are in the majority in this case, uh, they don't want the court to be seen as picking winners and losers in election after election around the country. And that's because unlike other areas of the law, the Supreme Court doesn't have the discretion to choose whether to accept redistricting cases for review. It's part of uh, the court's mandatory caseload. So the only way for the court to avoid having to rule on every single partisan gerrymandering case brought before it would be if it decided, as it did last week, that it couldn't rule on them in the first place. So... This could have been a dodge uh, because Chief Justice Roberts or some of the conservatives perceived this as a threat against the integrity of the court. Now, you can take issue with whether or not dodging it is more of a blow against the court's integrity than ruling on them in the first place. But, you know, I, 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 I know where I side on that issue, and I know where a lot of my peers in the reform community side on that issue, but the, the chief did not agree with us. So. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's had some controversial stuff, especially with the Voting Rights Act. So there you go. Um, yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> you know. So actually, when I met you and Sam, like, has it, has it been a year or two years? 
I'm not sure. I think it's at least a year. I think it was like last summer, to be honest. I think it was, I think it was last summer. Um, you and a group, you and this whole group of very brilliant statisticians and data experts were meeting to discuss fair maps. And I was really fascinated. I was like a fly on the wall, except I was at the table. Mm -hmm. Um, you discussing some of the kind of like obstacles and, you know, but also trying to figure out how it would work. You know, can you explain what fair maps are and why don't we have them yet? Sure. I, you know, I will be honest. I'm not even sure that we in the reform community necessarily agree on a a single definition of what a fair map is, but, um, generally, uh, I think it's, it's not so much a a legal idea as it is, uh, an idea deriving from political theory, which is that in a Republic, like our system, all power should be derived from the people. And when gerrymandering occurs, elected partisans are using the tools of government to perpetuate their own hold on power. So an advocate of for fair maps would essentially be saying that districts belong to the people, and if the people don't like the representatives, they should be able to vote them out of office. Right. And there shouldn't be a built-in obstacle created by the legislators themselves to prevent that from happening. That's, that's the, the core definition of what a fair map is. Now, some people may think that elections should be competitive or that communities of interest should be represented above all other criteria or that districts should look neat and compact rather than having bizarre shapes. And some of those criteria may be in conflict with one another, which is where the disagreement comes in. But when you get at it to, from a core idea, it's that districts should be responsive to swings in the electorate. And why don't we have that yet? It's primarily because legislators have, for most of this country's history, drawn their own maps. And so they naturally bake in a little bit of uh, favorability for their own party. That's both all, all political parties throughout history have done this to a certain extent. Democrats were famous for drawing a particularly egregious partisan gerrymander in California in the 1980s. Um, And Republicans happened to have more power and more states after the 2010 Tea Party wave. And so they took advantage in 2010. But there's, you know, well, while I think it's fair to criticize Republicans for the gerrymandering that's going on right now, it's important to note that no party has clean hands on this issue. Right, right. Um, And that's one of the reasons why we don't have fair maps is because when everyone... When any party is in power, they're tempted to abuse it. And I know that a lot of people feel rather helpless about gerrymandering. I mean, I, I, anybody I talk to about it, it's like, well, what can we even do about it? I mean, and you used Virginia as an example. You talked about, um, well, this like this last special election. I think it surprised everybody just how many seats were won um, at the local and state level. And a couple mm-hmm. of people said, this almost broke the gerrymandering, right? Um, right. So, you know, what are some of the things that ordinary citizens can do um, about this even before the 2020 elections? Sure. So there are a lot of great organizations that are doing work on the ground that uh, people should get in contact with. Uh, in the next week or so, uh, we at the Princeton Gerrymandering Project are planning on putting up a 50-state call to action on how people can get involved in the fight for fair maps. Okay. Um, some other great organizations that people can work with are Common Cause, which has a lot of, they have a national branch and a lot of state branches. The League of Women Voters, which has long been a leader on this issue. Right. They have, they have branches in all 50 states. Represent Us, which is an anti-corruption pro-democracy group. Uh, they have uh, branches in maybe all states at this point, at least many of them. And then their national group uh, is well connected with a lot of regional and state and local groups. So they they are an organization that can always use some volunteers. Uh, there's also a piece that was written uh, in Bustle recently, which uh, was written by uh, Monica Hunter Hart. I believe she's actually left Bustle at this point. But uh, that piece had great advice on how people can get involved in redistricting. So that's something that's uh, worth looking up. I thought that was a great, I read it, but you sent it to me. I thought it was great. I also thought Sam had a really good thread 
the other day that I meant to retweet. He discussed some um, step by step, some what to do about gerrymandering. So, I, all the people that you just mentioned, I'll um, link under this podcast, folks. Great, um, thank you. Also, if I could, if I could just plug one more thing, it's uh, people should people should call their senators and encourage them to vote for HR one, okay. which was the House's omnibus election reform bill uh, that was passed earlier this year. Uh, it includes a provision that would transfer the power to draw congressional districts to independent redistricting commissions that each state would be required to found. Uh, Mitch McConnell almost certainly isn't going to let this come right. up for a vote before 2020. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't count on it. But there are a lot of senators um, who are up for re-election in 2020 or maybe even 2022. Mm-hmm. And Mitch is one should, of them now. He's up for it in 2020. Mitch Mitch is up in 2020. Mm-hmm. And, but th- these senators should know that this is a, a priority from their constituents. So if you live in a state, even a, even a state where a blue state, safe, that your senator has said that they're for it, mm-hmm. it's it's certainly worth calling and just reminding them that, you know, election reform, maybe that isn't the issue you care about most. Maybe you're interested in the climate or women's rights or some other issue, but none of those issues will get a fair hearing at the state legislative level or in Congress if people aren't adequately represented. Absolutely. And so this is the issue that people need to push first to achieve all of the other things that they want to achieve. I also also always twist in uh, voter suppression because I can't vote, can't get your representatives. Right, exactly. (laughs) All of these things that stem from gerrymandering. If the legislature is gerrymandered, then uh, they can pass voter restrictions and not have to worry about the consequences of it. That's great. Again, I will post um, all those things that you mentioned on Twitter and also um, on this podcast. Um, I want to talk about the census because it was something also that SCOTUS – um, had to decide on this week. And I think a lot of people were pleasantly surprised. It's not a final thing. It's not set in stone, but they basically said, mm, maybe that's not a great thing. Right, right. So, um, so tell, before we touch on that, can you tell us a little bit about the function of the census? You talked about it a little bit, but, um, a little bit of the history behind it and, and just a clarity on, on how it's utilized and why we need to care about it. Sure. So, it's required by the Constitution. The enumeration clause in Article One uh, requires that congressional districts be apportioned among the several states every ten years based on population, and the census is the uh, means by which that is achieved. Uh, right. it's, historically, it hasn't really been a particularly partisan endeavor. I mean, after all, it's essentially just a massive headcount, right. uh, uh, which is boring to most people. Uh, but while there has been some collection of uh, immigration status, which was the issue behind the citizenship question, that, that has been collected in the past on the, so, on the so-called uh, long-form census. Right. And, more, and it is collected on the American Community Survey, which is something that the, the Bureau has begun doing in the last decade. Uh, the census form that everyone fills out, when you think of filling out the census, uh, if you did it in 2010, that form that you filled out, hasn't had a citizenship question on it since 1950. And one of the reasons that the Census Bureau stopped asking that on the short form was that they realized they got a lower response rate if they had it on there. And the goal of the census is to have as accurate a count as possible. Obviously, total accuracy is impossible in a country with 300 plus million people, but you should take every step to ensure that it is as accurate as it can be. And a citizenship question is known to depress responses from people who may not have legal immigration status. And so since those people are legally required to be counted, uh, that is considered to be uh, a burden. Um, How it's utilized. The census is not only used to reapportion citizens among the states, but it's used to allocate funding for dozens of federal programs, including... Uh, SNAPs, which is food stamps, highway funding, Pell Grants, and the National School Lunch Program, among others. Mm -hmm. So if there is an inaccurate count, uh, the communities that are undercounted will have more people than they have dollars to serve federal programs to them. So it it has these uh, cascading depressive effects on communities and uh, can have real economic impacts. 
I think a lot of people, you know, like you said, <laughs> on the, the face of it, it, it seems like it's kind of a boring thing because you said like a, it's a headcount, right? But right. Um, when people find out what happens from it, how it's utilized, and how the citizenship question um, could affect not a couple of people, but like it could, it could stop millions of people from participating in it. Um, right. So it, you you kind of already um, touched on it. You know, it could affect um, public funds. It, it could affect um, children who need to have um, free lunch, or it's not free lunch anymore for most people, but um, they'll have lunch debt, which is insane to me. So it has these massive effects. So um, what was kind of, um, this is, this was obviously why Trump wanted to put this, the citizen question on there. I mean, that's my cynicism, but um, I think that what came to light this week or uh, came to light last month was that it was for sure put on for that reason to depress votes. Yes. Um, and, yes. And the, so obviously the right. Exactly. Do you want to just touch on that for the, for people who don't know about that? Sure. So this is the redistricting guru that I, I mentioned earlier, right. Thomas Ho- Hoffler. Um, you, I actually have met him twice. Uh, Are you and, yes, I have. And so uh, I know people will call him Thomas Hofeller, but it's it's his name is Hoffler, and uh, he he's the Republicans' go-to redistricting guru. He's he's actually he's he's now deceased. Um, he had a long battle with cancer, I believe. Mm-hmm. And um, when his daughter was going through his house in North Carolina and settling his estate, she came across um, some hard drives that were just stored in his, in I think like a bedroom or something. And uh, she looked through those hard drives and she found a lot of documents that were related to redistricting in the census. And she didn't really know what to do with them. So she took them to... Uh, her local branch of Common Cause, which is a democracy nonprofit. And uh, Common Cause has been involved in a lot of redistricting litigation, and they started looking through these documents and just realized it was, the man never deleted anything. He kept all of his records of all of his emails, of all of the gerrymandering that he ever did on, on these hard drives. And so... It's, it's really remarkable because typically this is something that is, is never seen or discovered, these internal conversations. Even through right. modern discovery in federal courts, it's, it's hard to get the smoking gun, so to speak. Right. But these documents are, a, are shocking in how much they reveal. And one of the things they revealed was that uh, Thomas Hoffler had written a memo in 2015 uh, stating that if a citizenship question was added to the census, it would be representationally advantageous to Republicans and non-Hispanic whites. And it's literally, the smoking gun on a piece of paper. Literally, the smoking gun, and it was, and it was, it was an, unfortunately discovered after the trial in the census citizenship case that was at the Supreme Court had concluded. Uh, but the ACLU, who are the plaintiffs in that case managed to get that evidence um, in front of the justices through some emergency briefing and the government actually responded to it. So it was, you know, even if it wasn't officially before the court and the record, they were aware of it existing. And it has been used in a different uh, citizenship case in a different court that is back before it uh, is in the district court uh, of Maryland right now. So that evidence is being considered and it's, it's, we will see how this goes because there are still documents in those troves that we don't know about. Right. And I imagine there will be more interesting things that are revealed over time, although I don't have any you know, internal knowledge about that. I'm just speculating. But it's, it's, it's one of those remarkable moments in the law where people who had, uh, malevolent intent are openly revealed to have done so despite their best efforts to hide it. Right. So, um, when SCOTUS temporarily blocked the citizenship question last week, um, Trump obviously was very unhappy about this. And he tweeted, seems totally ridiculous that our government and indeed country cannot ask a basic question of citizenship and 
a very expensive, detailed, and important census in the case for 2020. I have asked the lawyer, just the one lawyer that he has, if, <laughs> they, can, yeah. if they can delay the census, no matter how long. So what are your thoughts on that? So I'll give the caveat by saying I'm, I'm not a census lawyer, um, but the census is constitutionally mandated, and uh, it isn't optional <laughs> whether or not to have one, mm-hmm. and uh, it has to happen every 10 years, and the Constitution is very clear that it happens uh, at the beginning of each decade, or the end of each decade, depending on which way you count. And s- I don't think that's possible, but I'm I'm saying that with the caveat that I'm not a, a, a uh, census lawyer, and maybe there is some precedent that says that delays are permissible in certain circumstances. Right. It, it seems kind of confusing, even for you know. I'll, I'll you know, <laughs> I was looking at you know some of the um, um, some of the thoughts from different lawyers, um, most mostly mm-hmm. civil rights lawyers, because they they were also trying to figure it out. Right? Um, they were saying right. they think it's dead. You know, maybe it's not. There might be time to change their minds, and so it's kind of confusing for all of us what happens because I. I thought that they were having to print up all of these things because you're printing up millions of these, uh, of these documents. And so I thought they had to figure this out really soon. So are we just kind of in a confusing moment of like, not, we're not still sure of what's going to happen next with the census and the census question. The litigation is still ongoing for the moment. The question is blocked and the, the, Government had made the argument that by that this had to be resolved by June thirtieth, and the the plaintiffs in the case, the ACLU, the case that was before the Supreme Court, yeah. argued that no, that's not correct. It's by the end of October is the actual, you know, drop dead deadline for when these forms need to be printed. Right, and so I don't know if the government has made any new arguments acknowledging the ACLU's point. Right. Presumably, they wanted to get the citizenship question off on the 2020 census or have any chance of doing so, right. they, would, they would have to now make that point because otherwise they've acknowledged it's too late. So why bother bringing the case anymore? Right. So they will certainly try. The, the U.S. Supreme Court remanded the case back to the agency for a chance to uh, come up with a, a new rationale for why this was necessary. Right. The agency, I have no doubt the Department of Commerce will do that. But now the Hoffler documents are out in the public or out in the open. Those can be used as part of the notice and comment period for the regulation that would add a citizenship question to the census. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's hard to imagine a world in which the government could come up with a neutral rationale that wasn't laughable on its face. Right. Well, that's good to know. The last question I'll ask, and it's really going to be more kind of an opinion um, from you. Um, I was looking over the um, CAP, uh, Center of American Progress, released new statistics last week, and it showed what all of us have already seen and known. There's demographic changes that are happening, that have been happening, that are making Republicans nervous, and they're making Democrats happy. And, um, you know, non-college whites, which make up a large part of Trump's base, have uh, will decline by two points, percentage points, um, by 2020. And, mm-hmm. um, and for marginalized groups, on the other hand, it goes up about two percentage points. And um, the, uh, the college-educated whites, which kind of split all over the place, but mostly down the line for Democrats and Republicans kind of remains the same. So all these trends are pointing for... These these trends keep shifting towards Republicans and of receding for for Republicans. So is Trump this kind of ideology fighting a losing battle um, by trying to keep something like partisan um, gerrymandering going and by trying to put on citizenship questions? Or are these things just really so successful that they could really keep an imbalance for a very long time? So... It's certainly possible with a citizenship question on the census and partisan gerrymandering for a minority party to maintain a majority control of government. We've seen that 
uh, at least the legislative branches therein. Right. Like we've seen we've seen that in Wisconsin, as mentioned earlier, and North Carolina uh, as example cases. Right. That doesn't mean that if a, that it's completely inevitable because if presumably if you had a majority uh, that was demographically favorable to Democrats through societal change over time, if you were electing officials statewide, such as governors who are required to sign off on district maps, mm -hmm. those governors would be of the opposite party of the gerrymandering party and could veto gerrymandered redistricting plans at, at an upcoming uh, redistricting after a census. Right. So in theory, it's not, it's not foolproof. Right. But, you know, the, it, it all depends on the demographic trends because right now, for example, uh, white millennials vote primarily Democratic. Right. But there's no guarantee, or at least I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that uh, white millennials will stay as Democratic as they are right now. Right. Typically, uh, when you look at white voters over time, as they age, they become more Republican. And so it'll yeah. be interesting to s right. It'll be interesting to see whether or not that continues with millennials. Maybe the maybe the trend is the same, but it's a uh, less steep. Uh, curve, and so they stay Democrats longer. Right. It's it's really unclear. It's all speculation at this point, but purely from a question, a perspective of can partisan gerrymandering hold on to minority power, minority in a political sense, um, indefinitely? The answer is probably not indefinitely, but certainly it can extend that hold on power longer than it would exist under neutral conditions. Mm. Well, then we know the solution. People have to be aware and get involved and do what they can then because, uh, absolutely, you know, this is like a critical year. Well, Ben, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Such no, wonderful answers. Me. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm Mike Contreras. This is Obscene. Until next time. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.